Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having a lot of fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you who are considering supporting my Algonquin Park storytelling efforts by becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron or buying some merch. As I've mentioned before, doing either is easy. Just click on the Become a Patron badge or the Gifts and Gear button at the top of my Algonquin Park Heritage website or on my Podbean podcast show page. There are four different patron support levels, each with lots of goodies. My merch collection has over 30 items from coffee cups to water bottles, journals to t-shirts. Now for this episode, in addition to my own research for my books, most of the content comes from a number of key sources. These include Rory Mackay's 2018 Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, Norm Quinn's 2002 Algonquin Wildlife Lessons in Survival, George Warecki's recent books on both J.R. Diamond from 2019 and Douglas Pimlot, uh, which was just published in 2021, George Garland's 1989 Glimpses of Algonquin, Robert Bateman's 2015 autobiography, Life Sketches, various articles in the Best of the Raven newsletters, volumes 1 to 3, as well as those from 2010 to 2021 that are available online, and of course the Wildlife Research Station's official website, algonquinwrs.ca, and selected of their published research papers and abstracts. I also want to give a huge shout-out and virtual hug to Patrick Muldowan, who has been just a fabulous partner in making sure I get all of this right, or at least mostly right, as I appreciate that my way of telling stories can be a bit trying for even the most sympathetic of researchers. I am deeply indebted. In the last episode, I shared a lot about the history and current purpose of the Wildlife Research Station. In this episode, I'm going to focus on a few other really cool research projects that over the years have won kudos country and in many cases worldwide. To kick things off in this episode, let's begin with some Algonquin wildlife trivia. Or should I call them fun facts? The idea here is that at your next dinner party or Zoom work event, you can use any of these fun facts that I will share in various parts of this episode as a conversation starter. You then need to file a report on my Algonquin Park Heritage Facebook page and share with all of us what happened. I expect we'll generate a lot of amusing stories, or at least I hope so. By the way, if you want a little hand reference guide for your conversation so you don't have to memorize them, please reach out to me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com and I'll send you one. So here we go. Did you know that in 1981, the park staff started a loon survey, which involved asking staff and also visitors to report if they saw loon nests or young on Algonquin Park Lakes? Over the course of 38 years, from 1981 to 2018, Sightings of either nests or young were reported on about 40% of the lakes for which sighting reports were received, a number that has been pretty consistent over the decades. Feeding deer to help them get through the winter is generally a bad idea, as a deer's stomach doesn't have the right microbes that can digest the rich grains that folks like to feed them. Those grains tend to just sit in their guts and ferment, creating a toxin that can inflame the lining of their stomachs and cause blood poisoning or generate bad cases of the runs. Conventional wisdom is that chipmunks that live in more urban settings would show greater levels of stress, would have poorer body condition due to lower quality food and competition for it, and bigger problems with parasites. Nope, not true. In fact, urban chipmunks might be in better physical condition than those in the wild, and they seem to have figured out how to better adapt to human presence and not increase their stress levels. The average mature moose weighs about 470 kilograms, which is about 1,025 pounds, and they don't like things that move that are low to the ground. So, to set the stage for this first piece of research, 
I need to take you back to the early part of the 20th century. It seems that as early as 1910, there were various reports in eastern and central North America, usually from trappers or those hanging out in the bush, who noted seeing moose appearing very weak. They were staggering out of the woods as if in some sort of stupor. The animals affected seemed almost to be tame, and some even looked like they were blind, staggering around, crashing into things, and even walking in circles. Eventually, with their hind legs nearly paralyzed, their heads became twisted in a grotesque sort of way. Although some would eventually drop dead, this, quote, moose sickness, unquote, didn't seem to actually kill them outright. They were more likely to die of starvation or predation. As it became an integral part of the bush lore of the North, there were all kinds of theories from dietary challenges to bacteria to pesticides to tick infestations, but none had been proven. Now let's fast forward to 1958, when Dr. Roy Anderson from the University of Guelph took the wildlife research station seen by storm. I don't know exactly when he first started working there, but what I do know is that according to Norm Quinn in his 2002 book, Algonquin Wildlife, Anderson not only became a wildlife research station icon, he was, quote, an exceptionally polite gentleman. He was formal, but with an amiable, endearing manner that engaged generations of students in this unlikely study, of parasites, that is, by regaling them with the life stories of these bizarre creatures with a wit and style of lecture that could at times be pure entertainment. Now wait a minute, I thought we were talking about moose. Hold on, hold on, we'll get there, but it's going to take a few minutes to explain. According to Norm Quinn in his book Algonquin Wildlife, which I paraphrase here, Quote, it seems, though, that Japanese scientists after World War II had discovered a similar sort of disease in sheep, goats, and horses. It seemed to be coming from a kind of roundworm that lived in the guts of cattle. It didn't hurt the cattle, but it did hurt other hoofed herbivores. Working with a colleague, Dr. Doug Davies, of blackfly fame, whom I mentioned in the last episode, the two started collecting worms from deep inside deer brains. Not only was it weird to find worms in the brains of deer, it was even weirder to discover that these worms were ones that normally were found in a deer's lungs. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm afraid that spending hours and hours looking for brain worms would be too much for me. However, as Norm Quinn went on to share... Further research indicated that these parasites were quite common in deer. Anderson and Davies' investigations of the worm's life cycle suggested that the worm's larvae were excreted on the deer's droppings and passed on to land snails that fed on the deer droppings. The land snails would then wander over to the open meadows and grassy areas that deer loved and would get accidentally eaten by the deer. Amazingly enough, the worms that were taking safe harbor in the infected snails would survive a deer's digestive process and would then migrate through the stomach walls, across the body cavity, and would penetrate over time directly into the deer's central nervous system. After about 20 or 30 days, hanging out there, the worms would migrate to the deer's brain lining, where they matured and reproduced. The worm's eggs were laid in the veins of the brain and then carried to the heart and the lungs, and from the lungs they would get coughed up or swallowed and would exit via the deer's feces. Okay, so now let's talk about Algonquin Park's moose. Algonquin Park's moose population has generally ranged from about 2,500 to 3,500 individuals. A moose survey is conducted every three years and it's done during the winter by park staff. Using a helicopter, they fly over a selection of 25 square kilometer grid plots and count every moose that they can find in each plot. Those counts are then used to guesstimate how many moose there are for the entire park. It seems that there was a peak of about 4,500 in the 1994-1996 time period, and a career low of less than 500 
in the 1952 to 1954 time period. Now with the attraction of Spring Road Salt on Highway 60, on average about 15 moose a year die from being hit by cars. So with this insight about what was going on with deer and these brain worms, Anderson started mapping every location where moose sickness had been sighted. Lo and behold, he soon realized that every place where moose sickness was observed, there were also white-tailed deer that were sharing the same range. Now, if there'd only been a few deer around, I suppose the moose sickness wouldn't have been as much of a problem as it was perceived to be at the time. But as a result of human action, such as logging, land clearing, and today's thinking that every deer is a Bambi that needs to be protected, the Algonquin Park deer populations became really large. It wasn't just large, it was unnaturally so. Even with the 170 or so that would get killed by cars on Highway 60 at that time. According to wildlife scientists, such overpopulation is usually a sign of a degraded ecosystem. This led Anderson to speculate that it was the close proximity to so many deer that was causing this moose sickness. To test this theory, Anderson found two moose calves in northern Ontario from areas where there'd been no detected moose sickness, nor even deer for that matter. His crew then fed them a few hundred lyri, and after two months had the answer he needed, as the moose got sick. Now famous, this study is considered a classic because it was able to show how a parasitic disease could affect wild game populations. Now what's interesting to me is that when I was a kid, it was common to see deer on Highway 60 all the time, and moose sightings were really rare. I can remember my mother getting a call in the 1960s from nature filmmaker Dan Gibson, who was telling us in an excited voice that there was one on a trail behind his cabin. We all raced over to see if we could see it, which we did, when it came barreling down the trail at us. Dan got some great film footage, but I just remember all of us kids being scared to death, and my mother freaking out. Now, my mother freaking out was true, but I'm not sure that the moose barreling down the trail actually happened. But it doing so became a great story as I was growing up. Now, Norm Quinn, in his 2002 book, Algonquin Wildlife, suggests that there was a severe deer die-off over the winters of 1969 and 1970. More recent research suggests that there were more likely other contributing factors, such as habitat transition, and that it is unlikely that it was really a die-off and more likely a more sedate pace of change. Either way, there's no question that as the forests recovered from logging and decades of fire suppression efforts, meadows with lots of new tasty growth disappeared. And from about that point on, I hardly ever saw any, and few, if any, pictures I have from those days have deer in them, whereas before that period, they all did. But again, that's based on nothing but impressions, not any fact-based research. But whatever the reason, the deer disappeared and since then the moose population has soared. They are a common sight on Highway 60 now, especially in the spring, when they're looking for salt, and in the fall when the males are looking for females. My sense, though, is that deer seem to be making a comeback. So it'll be interesting to see if scientists agree and if in future years we start to see more moose sickness appearing again. Another interesting piece of research started in 1952, and it was by Dr. J. Bruce Falls from the University of Toronto. He began to monitor deer mice and red back voles, not realizing that this was the beginning of what is now a 70-plus year adventure. As I mentioned previously, it is now the longest study of small mammal populations in the world. Guiding Dr. Falls was C. David Fowle, who was the head of the research division of the Department of Lands and Forests from 1944 to 1963. According to the Wildlife Research Station website, Dr. Fowle was a guiding force in establishing both the Wildlife Research Station in Algonquin Park and the Small Mammal Monitoring Program. His subsequent research focused on long-term studies of large forest mammals, with results that contributed greatly to our understanding of wildlife and its management in Ontario. He would later become a professor and the chair of the biology department at York University, where his research focused on bird behavior, habitat selection, and the impacts of pesticide use on bird species. 
In the vicinity of Highway 60, Dr. Falls and his students live trapped small mammals with sunflower seeds across a specific set of trap lines that were there and are today set up for three consecutive nights at bi-weekly intervals. Then and today, the animals typically captured included deer mice, eastern chipmunks, red voles, and woodland jumping mice. Occasionally also captured were short-tailed and saurusid shrews, white-footed and meadow jumping mice, and red and northern flying squirrels. Each animal would be identified, marked with metal ear tags, weighed and released. They were then followed throughout their lifetimes, if and when they were periodically recaptured. Dr. Fall's initial report in 1953 indicated that small mammal populations seemed to increase in the years following large crops of sugar maple seeds and that there was an underlying connection to sugar maple seed crops and the weather. Later, Dr. Ron Brooks, followed by Dr. Andrew McAdam and now Drs. Albrecht Schultz-Hosted and Jeff Bowman respectively took over the management of the study. They found, interestingly enough, that this pattern continued until the 1990s. Then, mice populations doubled, and in some years tripled the previous patterns, suggesting that climate change might be having an effect, in addition, of course, to food availability. According to the Wildlife Research Station website, small mammals represent an important component of forest ecosystems, Changes in the abundances of small mammal species can provide biological indicators of ecosystem integrity. They can be used to monitor responses to large-scale environmental changes such as climate change. Studies quantifying small mammal populations in undisturbed and relatively intact tracts of forest can also be used as a baseline for assessing the impact of various land use practices. Not only has this ongoing study helped in assessing numbers and identifying possible intrinsic or environmental causes for number of fluctuations, it has also helped the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry with assessing the impact of varying forest management practices, the management of fur-bearing predators of small mammals, habitat assessment, and these days worrying about the impacts of climate change as Algonquin Park temperatures get warmer. This we'll talk a lot more about in a future episode. Another interesting study that Dr. Falls initiated in 1963 was to study the songs of white-throated sparrows. Now, I'm sure all of you have heard the white-throat sparrow, but here's an example just to remind you. unaware, white-throated sparrows are called that because they have a distinctive white chin, but also come in two shades, what ornithologists call morphs. One morph of them have bright white stripes on their heads, whilst the other morph have brown stripes on their heads. This work, which Falls did at the Lake of Two Rivers Old Airfield, involved recording the songs of 61 of the sparrows. Now today, of course, we don't think too much about that fact because we hear recorded bird songs all the time. But Dr. Falls was the first scientist to use bird song playback to study the role of bird song in territorial interactions. He and his students were the first to realize and then demonstrate through field experiments that bird songs had specific features for individual and species recognition that they could recognize one another individually by song and that bird song repertoires were for a purpose. For example, the birds reacted more strongly to the songs of strangers than to songs of territorial neighbors. One student also noticed that their behavior differences also existed between the two color morphs. For example, different morph types would only mate with each other. In 2016, Dr. Falls was given the Order of Canada for his years of work studying birds and his lifelong effort and leadership in nature conservation. Since 2005, Dr. Scott Ramsey has been conducting additional white-throat sparrow research on the causes and consequences of variation among females in the timing of nest initiation and the number and size of the eggs that they lay. 
So far, according to the Wildlife Research Station website, Ramsey has, quote, ascertained that spring temperature and precipitation, the amount of food available leading up to egg laying, and the food availability for nestlings when they hit their peak demand might be influencing factors. He also found that females may also base some of their decisions on the characteristics of their partners, including guesses as to how good the selected male partner might be at gathering food for the young hatchlings and the likelihood of a nest surviving to fledging. Ramsey's also using stable isotope analysis of feathers grown prior to spring migration to estimate where the white throats that breed in Algonquin Park spend the winter. The data so far suggests that males winter farther north than females. Tan-striped individuals winter farther north than the white-striped individuals, and many of the birds in our population never leave Ontario in the winter. One other study that Dr. Falls led was one that I found amazing, and it was a study of oven birds. In 1974, Dr. Falls, with Rado Zock from the University of Toronto, decided to study oven birds to try to understand strategies that they use to optimize their food intake. Now, oven birds are unique because they build their nests in the ground, in little ovens made of bits of grass and other forest debris. They're easy to tame and handle and are the source of the teacher, teacher, teacher song that we often hear in summer and spring in the Algonquin Park area. Here's an example. Falls and Team's idea was to contain the birds inside specific locations and plant sections with different densities of grubs. The idea was to see if the birds just wandered around or if they optimized their time and effort by foraging where the grubs were in the greatest quantity. Well, not only did the birds concentrate their feeding in the heavy grub zones, they also showed some evidence of having some memory as to where the large quantity of grubs were. A little bit later, we'll talk again about birds and their memories. Other really important research that originated out of the Wildlife Research Station has been a comprehensive study of the Algonquin wolf population. First initiated in 1959 by Douglas Pimlott, after he joined in 1958 a program of research being coordinated by John Shannon of the Ontario Fish and Wildlife Branch. As noted in Rory Mackay's Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, Shannon's intent was to determine the influence of wolves on wildlife populations in Ontario and to provide a factual background for a judicious and efficient program of predator management. Of course, how to actually do that was not as easy. Though easy to track and count via their paw prints through the snow in winter, especially from an airplane, it's very difficult to count wolves during the spring and summer when the tree foliage hides them quite well. Pimlot, whom I'll talk about in more detail in a subsequent episode, was, according to a 1979 Wildlife Society of Bulletin article, driven by two key philosophical themes. One was that, quote, man was put a part of the environment and had to bring his numbers into balance with it, and individuals had the power to make things happen. Pimlot believed that, quote, all parts of the environment were important in their own right, and many quite possible for the survival of man. The land provided not only material things, but also gave a basis to aesthetic, cultural, and moral values. Man had to come to terms with the environment if he was to make the best of what was available to him. Now how true this still is more than 40 years after Pimlot's passing. Up until that point, as mentioned in Episode 5 and 6 on Poaching in the Park, Rangers and bounty hunters had been aggressively pursuing wolves since the park's beginning. Considered vermin for much of that time, wolves were aggressively killed or poisoned, and it wasn't until the 1930s that this sentiment started to shift somewhat. This shift was due in part to the fact that, as was noted by then-Superintendent Frank McDougall, no matter what was thrown at them, Algonquin Park wolves had survived all attempts to eliminate them from within the park. 
With J.R. Diamond and others whispering in his ear during the winter of 1932-33, McDougall encouraged his rangers to follow wolves and record where they traveled and how they behaved. One of the first realizations was the fact that often wolves, when chasing deer, had to give up the chase. This suggested that healthy and sound deer had a good chance of escaping, even when being pursued by a pack of wolves. Wolves, it seems, was just like any other animal in the ecosystem, and as McDougall reported at the time, quote, had to work hard to find enough to eat. Not much changed on the ground, as wolves were still aggressively hunted until efforts by the Ontario Deer Preservation League to introduce, or should I say reintroduce, the use of strychnine in the park to kill wolves alerted the Canadian Audubon Society and the Federation of Ontario Naturalists. These conservation organizations, resulting opposition, triggered extensive public interest, which led to a decision to protect the wolves in Algonquin Park, at least during the length of Pimlot's study time, which in the end lasted from 1959 to 1962. What made the study even more interesting was that it allowed both prey and predator to be studied as both were protected in the park, at least from human predation. During this time, Pimlet was a pioneer, as up until that time the only knowledge of wolf populations came from assessing bounty records and stories from trappers. Pimlet started investigating their food habits and preferences, hunting behaviors, movements, territories, and home ranges of packs and other factors that he thought were influencing wolf populations. One interesting result of Pimlot's work was the realization that Algonquin Park's wolves were smaller than others found in northern Ontario. This led some to think that there was an Algonquin subspecies of the timber wolf. Follow-on work by John Thaberge, who continued Pimlot's work in 1966, theorized that Algonquin Park wolves were a remnant population of the eastern wolf, a theory that was eventually confirmed by geneticists. As discussed in George Wierke's recent book on Pimlot's life and career, Douglas Pimlot and the Preservationists in Algonquin Provincial Park, 1958-1974, to in a parallel activity, Pimlot had obtained some orphan wolf pubs from northern Ontario. He was studying them at the Wildlife Research Station in special pens created for that purpose. As part of that effort, William Gunn, a former director of the station and pioneer in capturing sounds of nature, made four tapes of these captive animals with the idea of simulating the vocalizations of a wolf pack so as to see what they would do. As noted in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, the two of them went to various locations where wolf droppings had been found. Perhaps as more of a lark than anything else and played the recorded wolf howls. To their surprise, at Sunday Creek, the wolves responded. In 1966, John Thaber, bearings, who I mentioned previously, in his master's Pimlot thesis, was able to locate the responses and track of the down the pack wolves to their den site. To human howls, and, and he was able to do that those very quickly. To not just locating this packs, method over time, but created Pimlot a process that became pivotal to a number of other studies on particular packs. But only in, in areas that they could reach whilst by loggers at Waterloo. Dr. Thaber also discovered that sometimes the captive wolves would respond to human imitations of wolf howls, which led to their prohibition as well as they responded to the townships bordering the park. This led, as I think everyone knows, to the launching of the Wolf Howl program in 1963. In 1966, John Thaberge studied the responses of the captive wolves to human howls for his master's thesis, and researchers used the techniques to not just locate the packs, but created a process that became pivotal to long-term studies on particular packs. In 1998, whilst at the University of Waterloo, Dr. Thaberge used radio collars to study how wolves followed deer out of the park in late winter. This led to their prohibition of wolf hunting in some townships bordering the park. I think it's time for another musical interlude. I've invited back the Waccamai Whalers, with their song Wild Goose. It's from their 1, 2, 3, 4 album from 2017. On Pakistan River so early this morning 
While mending my comp line, I hear the geese calling. Over the brule, long clamoring cry. Flying formation against the gray sky. Comes a wild goose, the wild goose, high over the North Shore, and I'm going home. The river is open, but the lake's frozen over. It's time to pack out when so late in October. Winter's a common the wild geese know. We've had a long fall and it's time to go with the wild goose, the wild goose high over the North Shore, and I'm going home. I've made lots of money, got money to burn. And when I have spent it, I know I'll return. After the freeze up when snow is dry. For to work in the tall woods, I wish that I were a wild goose. Wild goose, high over the North Shore, and I'm going home. Comes a wild goose, wild goose, high over the North Shore, and I'm going home. I've worked in the bush and spent money in town. I'd like to get married, but I can't settle down. At the last portage, when I pack no more, let me fly with the wild goose high o'er the North Shore. With the wild goose, wild goose high over the North Shore, and I'm going home. With the wild goose, wild goose high over the North Shore, and I'm. Going home. Another one of the really interesting long-term studies out of the Wildlife Research Station has been the studying of Algonquin Park turtles. Now, I'm sure most of you have noticed the cloth sheet barriers that edge various waterways along Highway 60. These have been erected to stop Algonquin's four kinds of turtles, midland painted turtles, snapping turtles, blanding turtles, and wood turtles, from using the warm gravel and beds along the highway as nesting spots in late spring. Started in 1972 and led by Dr. Ron Brooks from the University of Guelph, according to the Wildlife Research Station website, Algonquin Park's turtle project began with snapping turtles. On the Lake Sasagiwan Dam, 20 nesting snapping turtles were weighed, measured, and tagged. The idea was to see if they even returned the next year. According to Norm Quinn in his book Algonquin Wildlife, Dr. Ron Brooks was a man of average height, was solidly built with a shock of curly hair, and had a mischievous twinkle in his eye, that belayed a spontaneously dry sense of humor. Over the years, Dr. Brooks has built almost a cult of research disciples who, like he, love the study of reptiles and amphibians, 
of which he is a leading Canadian expert. Well, it turns out the turtles did return, and by 1976, 80 females had been tagged, and it was decided to undertake a long-term study of reproductive output and movements. In 1981, it was realized that these turtles were relatively long-lived and offered a reliable way to measure key life history and environmental variables in a long-lived species in comparatively undisturbed aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems. The thought was that this would complement the ongoing long-term study of short-lived small mammals that I discussed previously. In 1978, painted turtles were added, and in the 1980s, Blanding's turtle and wood turtles were incorporated into the study. Since its beginning, more than 3,500 individual turtles have been marked and released. Painted turtles, researchers have found, usually first lay 4 to 11 eggs, and later a second small clutch, a few weeks after their first, and they mature at about 14 years of age. Snapping turtles, on the other hand, lay anywhere from 25 to 60 eggs and mature at about 18 years of age, but interestingly, after about 45 years of age, don't grow very much bigger. Most nests are quickly located and destroyed by predators, such as foxes and raccoons, and as a result, few of the snapping turtle eggs make it past their first year, let alone to adulthood. But when they do, they reach on average of about 40 pounds, and if the populations are undisturbed, their survivorship is about 95%, and they can live for a very long time, likely exceeding 100 years. Now, my only experience with snapping turtles was when, as a child, one decided to move in under our dock. Normally, we never saw it except when we were fishing, when it would appear, and it really liked to nibble the worms off of our hooks, to our great frustration. How it never seemed to get caught on the hook, I'll never know. My mother claimed that when she was cooling off her feet in the lake, it sometimes would come by to check out her toes. I'm not sure that that was actually true, but it was a good story and taught us not to be afraid of them. But I suspect that our constant shouts and splashes made it not exactly the most wonderful of habitats. It hung around for a couple of seasons and then disappeared. Perhaps since we weren't fishing as much, it decided to move on to a better home location. But back to the snapping turtle research story. For about 15 years, things seemed pretty stable, with on average about one new turtle being added to the population every year. But that all changed in 1987, when, to the team's horror, only half of the normal number showed up to nest. The rest were found dead, having been mutilated in a similar fashion. Holes had been dug in the shells near the legs and the insides ripped out. This continued for two more winters, resulting in the loss of about 65% of the population. For a long while it was a mystery until otters were found to be the culprit. This was a surprise because the otters had been part of the ecosystem in the pond for quite some time and had never before molested the turtles. Speculation is that the otters came across a hibernating group of turtles on the lake bottom one winter and opportunistically took advantage. Now, research on other species suggested that there would be a compensating comeback due to the sudden population loss. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened at all. In 1994, Dr. Brooks also confirmed what British research was showing, that if temperatures were low, incubating eggs were more likely to emerge as males, not females, compounding the comeback problem. Fast forward 30-plus years, and there's been little evidence of any significant turtle recovery. Hence the desire to protect them as much as we can along Highway 60, where there are high probability of nesting accidents or they're being killed by cars. Today, turtlers, which is what turtle researchers are called, have compiled a unique set of data spanning over 50 years and thousands of individuals, across tens of thousands of captures. Ongoing study has investigated all kinds of things, such as survivorship, growth, reproductive output and success, recruitment, genetic variation, movements, diet, or the lack thereof, density-dependent changes, the impacts of mortality, 
age-specific life history changes and the role and effects of thermal constraints at their climatic range limit. Another type of turtle that I mentioned previously that was added to Brooks turtle studies in the 1980s that has been studied extensively in Algonquin Park since then is the wood turtle. Wood turtles are considered endangered internationally, endangered provincially, and threatened federally in Canada, as they also live in Quebec, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. As paraphrased from Norm Quinn's book, Algonquin Wildlife, wood turtles are about the size of a baseball cap with an upper shell that looks like it's been artistically carved into an ornate pattern of olive and yellow grooves and flaring ridges. They also have a bright orange neck and forelegs and are strangely responsive and seemingly fearless of people. They, of course, withdraw into their shells as all turtles do upon being picked up, but usually will reemerge shortly. Because of this friendliness, they've been majorly collected by those in the illegal pet trade and as a result have disappeared from most of their former range. It's now illegal to capture them and the only viable population may, may be that which today exists in Algonquin Park. What's really interesting about wood turtles is that when not hibernating over the winter or mating in the springtime, which they do in water, they spend a lot of their lives roaming on land. This makes them, of course, extremely vulnerable. This is not just because they might get flattened on roads, but because they are highly susceptible to predators as they can't easily retreat to water to escape. It is, though, not easy for predators to kill them, and so they're often found with limbs missing or mutilated. In 1987, Norm Quinn was part of a team that was able to find a few in the park to whom specially designed cylindrical radio transmitters were affixed to the rear of their shells. The distances through which these little turtles would range was incredible. One, for example, would venture as far as three kilometers to its preferred spring nesting site. Now, of course, they aren't the only turtles that like to run marathons. Snapping turtles do as well. Some have been known to travel as much as 16 kilometers round trip between their preferred nesting site and their home range. Wood turtles, it also turns out, like to stomp. This is a bizarre phenomenon where the turtle raises on each foreleg and drops to the ground in a staccato drum-like fashion. The idea speculated by a Pennsylvania biologist and later reconfirmed by others is that this drum-like pounding sounds to worms like heavy rain. So as to avoid drowning in their holes, the worms are lured to the surface and subsequently provide a marvelous dinner for wood turtles. Current research suggests that more likely this thumping and drumming mimics the burrowing of moles, which are predators of earthworms. Whatever the reason, pretty smart turtles these wood turtles are. Unfortunately, researchers also discovered that like snapping turtles, wood turtles don't mature until at least eight years of age and only produce clutches of a few eggs that often fall prey to predators. Now, the brainworm studies related to moose sickness that I talked about previously wasn't the only major moose studies that have been done in the park. In the mid-1980s, Dr. Ed Addison decided to study the cycle of winter ticks. Ticks, as everyone knows, are loathsome, blood-sucking creatures and plague not just our pets in the summer, but also many humans through Lyme disease. Lyme disease started in the northeastern USA and has spread extensively across the continent. But for those unaware, the irritation from winter ticks is what causes moose to sometimes rub off huge swaths of their hair in the spring and to appear on the side of Highway 60 almost ghost-like or covered with what look like clumps of grapes on their flanks. This hair loss leaves moose very vulnerable and sometimes even fatally so due to the loss of body heat due to the variability of the weather at that time of year. It seems that it's impossible for moose to eat enough to offset the body heat loss and sometimes even will die of pneumonia-like illnesses, not necessarily of starvation. Addison speculated that mild springs 
caused more ticks to drop off the infected moose and survive to lay eggs under rocks and leaves. In harsh springs, the larvae would instead fall on the snow, and a greater proportion wouldn't survive. In the fall, those larvae that did survive would climb up vegetation, which often it turns out to be in places where moose are known to rest, and would wait for the moose to pass by. When the moose did, the larvae would jump onto the moose and hide in the moose underfur. In midwinter, they would become ticks and start sucking the moose's blood. One year, a moose calf was found to be carrying more than 50,000 winter ticks, which has me squirming just thinking about it. Sometimes, great winter tick infestations have caused significant moose die-offs. This happened in 1999 and 2000 and reduced the Algonquin moose population by about half. Interestingly enough, in the spring of 1989, there were also reports of lots of dead moose in the Algonquin Park bush. I know this to be true, as my neighbor John Ridpath came to tell me later that spring he'd come by to check on how my cottage had fared that winter. As he approached the dock, he found a large dead moose that had gotten caught in the boat slip and was stuck floating off the end of my dock. He tied it to my dock so it wouldn't float away, and then later with a friend dragged it to the foot of the bay and left it to decompose there. Another moose researcher in the 1980s was Anthony Bubinick, who spent most of his life obsessed with hooved animals, especially moose. He was most interested in how moose behaved and how they maintained social harmony. He even wrote a detailed morphology of moose hooves and designed a hoofwear index, showing the various states of deterioration that he thought wildlife managers could use to assess the health of a moose population. Born in Czechoslovakia in the 1930s, he immigrated to Canada in 1970. According to Norm Quinn, he cut his hair in an austere crew cut and wore thick wire-rimmed glasses. He generally had a gruff tone about him and a heavy Czech accent, and was somewhat intimidating. He often went into the field dressed in a tweed jacket with ornately carved bone buttons, and after successful moose encounters would frequently pull out a flask of Grand Marnier with which to toast the event with all who were around, no matter what the time of day. His view of the biological world was that animals were always searching for ways to be, quote, in the groove, unquote. In other words, in a proper niche, so that they felt in harmony with their environment. It was a concept he called Omwelt, as Norm Quinn wrote, and I paraphrase, Bubenek believed that moose were constantly trying to position themselves in the Omwelt but that the Omwelt itself was constantly changing, especially with the seasons. The world that moose lived in is never as complex as the fall of the year when the animals enter an interlude of frenzied activity, a period so fervid, so intense as to verge on madness. This vainglorious orgy of narcissistic display, fighting, and mating has a serious purpose, that set the social order and the well-being of the entire population." Unquote. So here are some of the highlights. Bubenik's main studies of rutting moose took place from an observation platform in a corner of an open bog near Cameron Lake called Peter's Pond, named after another moose biologist, Peter Smith, who assisted Bubenik for over 10 years and went on to be a leading moose researcher as well. They chose this site because it was the location where male moose bulls would dig their rutting pits and fought great battles. For those unaware, a moose rutting pit is a shallow pit that a bull moose digs. In it he will urinate profusely until the pit becomes a semi-liquid goo of aromatic mud. He will then wallow in it vigorously and even stomping in it to soak his antlers. The resulting Quote, eau de moose, unquote, can be smelled for miles around, attracting both cows and competitors. Moose, it seems, also have an incredible sense of smell, with scent smells approaching 830 square centimeters in size, as compared to human ones, which are only about four or five square centimeters in size. 
Alas, the chances of two male moose or a male and a cow showing up at the same time at Cameron Lake was still pretty remote, so Bubinek created a portable moose head dummy to which he would attach various types of heads and antler sizes and shapes. This head he would wear to test various theories as to what the moose would or wouldn't respond to and what they would do when either one of them, a cow or a bull, showed up. He didn't worry much about his own safety when approaching or being approached by a rutting moose because he believed that the antlers in the front end of a moose was all that a bull moose in heat could comprehend and would ignore everything else. This actually turned out to be generally true and allowed him to act out various bizarre ballets with the moose as an equal by varying his posture and movements in subtle and secret ways and in so doing learned every nuance of the body language of a moose in heat, both cows and bulls. Through hundreds of observations and dances, Bubinik was able to deeply understand the intricacies of posturing and the subtle body language, in other words, the fighting rituals that bulls use to initiate or avoid a fight that resulted in a sort of moose social pecking order. He also discovered that cow and bull face color mattered and that different face colors could also elicit different responses. He also learned about a complex set of rules of engagement, such as the victor does not ever hurt the loser. If you're interested in learning more about Bubinik's work and how he did it all, take a look at Quinn's book, Algonquin Wildlife. There are also a number of great articles in the Raven newsletter collections that can be ordered from the Friends of Algonquin bookstore. Well, I think that's enough wildlife research for one day. I do hope you've enjoyed this foray into the world of the Wildlife Research Station research projects. As Patrick Muldowen said, the Algonquin Wildlife Research Station has been host to great discoveries about Algonquin's natural world, from flies to flying squirrels, mice to meningeal worms, shrews to salamanders and songbirds, turtles to trees, and woodpeckers to wolves. Don't forget that most of the books I referenced can be found online or at the Friends of Algonquin bookstores. A list of research publications can also be found on www.algonquinwrs.ca, and I encourage you all to join their Patreon program as well. Until next time.